Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guest as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Alex. I'm delighted to uh, have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. It is the... it's about it's it's twelve noon on uh, Black Friday, and you're getting ready for um, for Giving Tuesday right around the uh, uh, after after the after the weekend, uh, day after Thanksgiving. And uh, you and I have not had the pleasure of meeting, so I'm delighted that you uh, accepted the invitation to come on here and talk about um, some of the recent events in the um, cryptocurrency conversation and how it's phila- uh, affecting philanthropy. Uh, before we dive into that, um, how about I just ask you to introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Jason. Um, so yeah, I'm Alex Wilson. I'm one of the two co-founders of The Giving Block. Started the company back in 2018 with the idea that nonprofits seem to start tapping into this new donor demographic of crypto donors. It's taken off since then, grown really quickly. I'm sure we'll get into a lot of that later, but we're working with about 2,000 different charities now and have raised over $100 million in crypto donations for them. Yeah. And we've had... Um, uh, Alex, we've had Pat on here as well. I think that was about a about a hundred episodes back. Um, you guys both founded the Giving Block. Can you tell us a little bit about the organization and what it is you exactly you do? Sort of where you fit into the uh, uh, into the conversation for the average fundraiser who might be listening to today's conversation. Yeah. So um, it's changed a bit over the years. We started out purely focused on crypto philanthropy. So helping nonprofits accept cryptocurrency donations like Bitcoin or Ethereum. And of course, on the flip side, making it easy for donors to donate crypto to their favorite causes. 
the thing that made us really unique was that we were actually focused on fundraising crypto rather than just accepting it. So the, the difference in that is that we viewed this as a donor demographic rather than a donation method only, which meant, you know, it's one thing to accept crypto, but to actually proactively fundraise it is a totally different skill set. And you see quite a difference in ROI. So we decided as part of that, that if we were going to help nonprofits actually fundraise it, we needed to create an actual crowdfunding platform that became the place you went to find nonprofits that accepted crypto because not everyone was accepting crypto yet. And the second piece to that, of course, is making fundraisers comfortable with engaging and interacting with crypto users. Um, because of course, even things like a lingo is different, right? You know, we joke that we're trying to keep them from writing Bitcoin as two words so they don't scare the donors away, giving them marketing toolkits so they know what to say, how to say it, when to say it, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's been our, our story for most of the time. And then more recently, we started getting into things like stock donations too. Um, but keeping the focus on engaging with this younger donor demographic. So kind of this younger generation of investors. Yeah, you know, Alex, I think uh, before we dive into our conversation, uh, clarify for me if my if my uh, recollection is correct. It seems like I've recently read that among amongst uh, millennials, for example, um, the number of them that that hold some volume, some some amount of of cryptocurrency, some 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 quite amazing number. Maybe it was even a conversation that you were a part of that I that I observed maybe on social media or something. Um, what is that number or, or, or clarify what it is maybe that I saw? Yeah. So I think you saw us talking about a, a survey or a report that CNBC did that reported that 83% of millennial and Gen Z millionaires own cryptocurrency. And I don't know the exact percentage off the top of my head, but quite a few of them have more than half of their net worth in cryptocurrency, which is pretty astounding as well. So a guy like me, who uh, is is one of these, admittedly one of these guys who's going to sort of stutter around in this conversation because um, I don't understand this stuff, and 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 would oftentimes prefer just to have a someone like yourself or Pat come on here and explain it to me. Um, what is it perhaps that we need to understand about the millennial? What does that tell us about the millennial donor, um, or even about my? You know, I, I'm I'm sort of I'm that I'm on that I'm on that younger side of Generation X, and I think you referenced Gen X as being part of that cohort as well. Um, what is it that we sort of need to know and understand about that donor for to to, to explain why they have why that would be part of their portfolio? Yeah, I would say a lot of this is going to kind of be the opposite of what people expect <laughs> in the sense that, you know, the donors, when, when nonprofits often hear, oh, these are younger donors, they think, OK, small gift size, right? L relatively low net worth, maybe compared to their other donors. And in crypto, it's actually the opposite. They tend to have a higher average income of over $100,000, so more than twice the nas national average. And their gift sizes tend to average around $10,000. Um, so it kind of breaks both of those misconceptions around younger donors. That's pretty unique to crypto. And it's, it's going to increasingly look this way because, as we all know, there's trillions of dollars being passed down from older generations to millennials and Gen Zs in the coming years. And they're increasingly preferring to store their wealth in digital assets rather than more traditional things like stocks and bonds. So it's, it's only going to become more and more common, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, I think it. I I, I think it does. So, um, and 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 you're gonna uh, every conversation that I've had with you guys and and with others around crypto is sort of uh, bringing me more and more up to speed. So, Alex, you recently wrote an article that caught my attention. I I've, I've now actually read through it twice. Um, a lot of us who are part of this conversation, or or at least trying to keep ourselves up to speed on this, are probably following the. Um, the Bankman-Fried, the FTX sort of story. Can you sort of, for, for maybe even some of our listeners who are not familiar with what has happened here in the last, this is this is just what, in the last two or three weeks, um, I thought you wrote a great article that I thought we could kind of work our way through here. Um, can you kind of summarize what that is um, with this with this collapse of F- FTX and, and maybe why it matters to uh, to the average fundraiser or nonprofit executive who's who's concerned about crypto? Sure. Yeah. So for those of you who haven't heard the story over the last couple of weeks, um, basically a a pretty big time fraud was exposed related to FTX, which is a cryptocurrency exchange and their CEO, Sam Bankman Fried. Um, You know, they were relatively large and and well-known and well-liked really in not just crypto, but even among, you know, politicians. Um, They were large political donors, even which makes the whole thing even more complicated. And what came out over the last few weeks was that they were basically running a Ponzi in some senses. This was kind of a Bernie Madoff equivalent moment, but in the world of crypto. Um, and what happened was it turned out that FTX, the cryptocurrency exchange, was actually taking user deposited funds and lending them to a hedge fund, which was kind of also run by the same people, but technically a different entity. So of course, that's incredibly illegal. It goes against their terms. Um, goes against everything they're supposed to be doing. And they ended up losing roughly $10 billion. So a huge and incredibly reckless fraud, um, which of course really, really shook everyone's kind of, I think, confidence short term. Um, but I would say, you know, as we go through this, the, the biggest thing to keep in mind is this was the failure of an entity and an individual rather than an industry. Yeah, and it's interesting that you call it. Uh, you refer to uh, uh, Bernie Madoff and the sort of referred to it as a Ponzi scheme because I think that probably helps. Um, I don't know that that's a phrase that that's a phrase that I think a lot of us sort of, without having to get ourselves tongue tied up in the crypto language and the the, the collapse of F- FTX in particular, I think a lot of us can sort of get our heads wrapped around you know something of that sort. I remember when that played out when the Bernie Madoff. Uh, uh, situation played out a number of years ago. I was, I was, you know, what was that? 10, 15 years ago. Um, and I remember a, a charitable organization that I was very familiar with that had donors that were tied in that. And, um, and, you know, there was concerns. The organization was, the organization was concerned about how that would sort of affect them. And I suspect that's some of the, some of the concern today, you know, as, as I'm reading Alex, as I'm reading through these different headlines that come through on my feed about FTX and the bankruptcy and the collapse and, and Bankman Freed, you know, philanthropy comes up a lot. I mean, I didn't even know that this, honestly, I didn't know who this guy was up until about three weeks ago. <laughs> um, I'm, I don't have crypto. I don't know, you know, FTX didn't mean much to me three weeks ago. Um, but this is a guy who got himself, uh, you know, really behind the effective altruism movement, which is something we've talked about here on the podcast. But this is a character who, um, you know, more than he, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he kind of comes across as a guy who was just as fascinated with being sort of known as this philanthropic, you know, extraordinary, generous guy who's 30, I think he's 30, 31 years old, already had signed the giving pledge, et cetera, et cetera. Um, like that's a big part of his narrative. Am I right? 
Yeah, no, you're, yeah, you're, spot, you're on. spot on. And he certainly now, it seems like, used that to kind of cover up some of his wrongdoing, right? And if you look at some of his interviews and the articles written recently, um, Vox, actually, in particular, has some conversations they uncovered where he basically admits this was all a shtick, right? Just for the sake of the good press and the kind of look good and be popular, making political donations, philanthropic donations. But it was all fake, he basically admits. That he was doing this all for the sake of being popular and well liked and, and growing the the Ponzi, basically. Um, so unfortunately, he doesn't seem like he was ever actually genuine about being this this huge philanthropist. Where does the effective altruism? I, I, this is something that I you know I read Peter Singer's book a number of years ago. Um, at times, I've kind of wondered if at, at times I've sort of snarkily sort of referred to effective altruism as almost like a uh, you know Consumer Reports guide for you know, charitable giving, you know, how can we, you know, put metrics next to the, um, to the, to, to, to the, the choices that we make in terms of providing charitable support, but how does the effective altruism sort of narrative sort of weave into this? I mean, did he have to suggest that Bankman Freed, for example, was not, you know, his motives were sort of misguided and how does that even, do you think he even had his head wrapped around that, for example? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was just something he decided he was going to support and thought it was in his best interest to kind of become a prominent figure in this sort of subsector of philanthropy, right? I think when you when you identify with a certain sort of subsector or category or niche, it's much easier to stand out than if you just say, I'm going to give a lot of money away, right? Um, you'll even see it with certain other billionaires where they pick maybe a certain cause or a certain nonprofit or, or something that more specific than just saying, I'm going to donate, right? I think that helps build kind of a, a narrative and a story around what you're doing. But I think for him, I mean, it's similar to other things. Just just because he was a supporter of effective altruism doesn't mean that all the other effective altruists are are bad people, right? He's one bad actor and, and the others aren't, you know, bad or, or criminal by association or anything like that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's definitely that's that's a that's a really insightful sort of way to put it because I think I I've definitely seen that where um and I I suspect a lot of my listeners who routinely interact with major donors who sort of associate themselves with a particular I, I can sort of make sense about why uh those in the effective altruism camp would be uh an appealing association for a for a character like um like Freed. Um so how does this so let's like bring this down to the brass tacks and the actual, so the on the ground nonprofit organization, um, you know, we've got, uh, we're running up right up against the chair, uh, you know, the biggest charitable giving season of the year. If we've got lots of younger donors, perhaps they're going to be moving currencies in and out of uh, our organizations. What do you suspect the effect of this is going to be, or is it going to have any effect at all? I think the effect is pretty negligible. To most nonprofits, um, you know, most of their work when it came to philanthropic donations, it was more pledges than it was actual gifts that had happened or had been happening on a regular basis. A lot of it was actually political donations. Um, and overall, if you look at the the whole space, it's a very small sliver that they had contributed, right? Um, and it certainly wasn't, um, you know, a material amount to our client base or I think to the philanthropic sector in general. So I don't actually think there is much of an impact um, because they weren't, you know, on the level of like, let's say, a Gates Foundation or anything like that. Right. Um, and they were relatively new in the space. And for us, I mean, 
even over these last few weeks, we've actually seen crypto donations continue to grow and outpace what they were last year, despite crypto being lower this year. I mean, just, I think it's been a, maybe a month now, we had our biggest donation ever to a client of over, I think almost nine and a half million dollar um, crypto donation from one individual, which is pretty amazing to see. So crypto philanthropy as a whole hasn't slowed down and we're already on track to have our biggest Q4 ever when it comes to crypto philanthropy. So for us, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a really horrible you know, event that happened, an unfortunate event, but at least on the philanthropic side, I, I think the impacts are, are negligible. So we're about to, uh, like we said, uh, when we kicked off the conversation here, it's, you know, it's the day after Thanksgiving, today's Black Friday, it doesn't look like Black Friday's playing out as, as, as it used to. Uh, I was on, uh, I was on TikTok this morning and noticing that uh, perhaps there's not as much of a run on the department stores like we used to see when we were kids. Um, but uh, Giving Tuesday is right around the corner and it, and, and I was not aware until this, this conversation with you all um, that, um, that you got, you, you all have a certain component to this as well. Um, and I suspect that's because um, Giving Tuesday plays out amongst younger millennial donors who have crypto in their, uh, in their accounts. Um, what does this look like for you all uh, next week? Yeah, so in 2019, we launched the first ever Crypto Giving Tuesday, which is just what it sounds like, right? The crypto version of Giving Tuesday. We do it on the same day, totally in parallel. And we use it as the kickoff of our broader end of year campaign that we call Bag Season. So starts Giving Tuesday, runs through the end of the year. Um, and similar to other trends you see in the space, a ton of donations happen in those last four or five weeks of the year. Um, last year, we had something like 30% of crypto donations happen in the month of December. Um, a lot of that has to do also because a lot of people are giving crypto for tax reasons. Um, and often until they get towards the end of the year, they maybe don't know how much they they need to be donating for certain offsets, right? Or tax deductions, or they're just waiting to the last minute, right? <laughs> Trying to squeeze it in before the year is over. Um, but Crypto Giving Tuesday for us is really a time where we bring together the crypto community, right? You know, influencers, companies, um, you know, and then connect them with the nonprofit community. And often they're helping promote nonprofits. They're putting up match dollars. They're really trying to just raise, raise the awareness that this is the time to give and kind of the giving season. So in a lot of cases, we're trying to replicate what the traditional world of philanthropy has done, but bring that to the crypto community. We even have NF Tuesday now and the crypto giving pledge. So we've replicated a lot of the success we've seen in the traditional world and applied the nuance of the crypto world to it. So to kind of shift gears to more practical, uh, you know, since I have the benefit of this conversation, my my listeners are perhaps some of us are maybe more fluid on this than than other fluent on this than others. Um, from a practical standpoint, you know, I remember Alex at the beginning of my career, for example, planned giving. You know, these these planned estate type gifts. I remember sitting in workshops and 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 I I started to figure out I started to figure out that. Planned giving and you know non you know non cash transactions were going to perhaps be a big part of my fundraising career, and especially if I was going to be in major gifts, I need to be able to make sense of this, et cetera, et cetera. And so I learned a, an entirely new language, and I seem to think that when I when I reflect on my conversation with Pat, maybe that was a year and a half ago, and perhaps some as as I'm sort of becoming more more and more fluent with what we're talking about here today, even with this recent controversy. Um, is, is that in a lot of ways, what this really comes down to for the fundraiser is that they have to learn a new language and that maybe the, the underlying, the sort of the underlying process of exchanging assets, just 
in this case, a different type of asset really is, is not nearly as critically important as much as just knowing how to communicate that language. Am, am I, am I, am I posing the question uh, correctly? Yeah, no, I, I think you're spot on in the sense that accepting it is the easier part and fundraising it is the harder part. Um, and the way we always look at it is at its core, when you're fundraising crypto, you're essentially learning how to fundraise more effectively from younger donors, right? And it's not just crypto, but that's what we're learning. Like over time, like we've just gotten really good at fundraising from younger donors, which a lot of nonprofits struggle with. Um, because just like you would tailor your messaging to, let's say, other different demographics, whether it's age or, or something else, you need to have the nuance for other things like the crypto community, right? Um, and it certainly is a big part of major and planned giving because so many high net worth individuals like to give appreciated assets for tax reasons, right? The, the more assets you own, the, you know, the more likely it is that you're going to be giving assets rather than cash. Um, you know, there's a reason you see, you know, people donate a billion dollars worth of stock, right? Rather than writing a check. It's because they can give, let's say, 20 or 30% more because they're basically giving pre-tax dollars. Um, so it is really important that nonprofits understand the tax benefit for their donors and are also able to educate their donors on that. Because the reality is so many donors, especially younger ones, don't know about those tax benefits of giving appreciated assets yet. Um, so we spend a lot of our time trying to educate not just the nonprofits, but the donors too. Now, depending on the so, – so I worked for – before I sort of landed in my consulting career and started you know, sitting in the posture that I'm at where I'm not necessarily soliciting gifts um, on behalf of an organization routinely, um, one of the things that uh, – one of the things that I – recall with different employers. So the different, different organizations that I worked for um, is some of these would, and, and, and I'm referring to, uh, you know, stock transfers, for example. So at Christmas season, we'd receive a gift from so-and-so and it would be a large chunk of, you know, General Electric stock or something like that, uh, Disney stock or something. Um, and different organizations had different opinions, different philosophies, different policies as to whether or not they sat on these, um, on these, uh, you know, shares? Uh, did they hold on to the General Electric shares or did they cash them out and convert them to cash really quickly? What is that? Is that sort of the same? Does that sort of, does that conversation and policy and question sort of play out very similarly in terms of the crypto conversation that when a, when, when one of these younger millennial donors, you know, donates an, a large chunk of crypto to your organization, are organizations sitting on this and, and maintaining their own accounts or are they like, you know, some of my employers saying, no, we got to convert this into cash really quickly uh, because we really don't know what the hell to do with it. Yeah, yeah. I would say so we give nonprofits the option to do either one. Um, they can hold it in crypto if they want and keep it as an investment, basically, or they can have it automatically converted to cash through our system. Something like 95% of them are opting for that automatic conversion. They get the cash sent to their bank account every week. And it feels like any other type of donation because they've got all the reporting, but in the end, they're just getting cash in their bank account. Um, you know, a lot of nonprofits are just taking the gift acceptance policy they have for other non-cash gifts and applying it to crypto, right? Because the way they're reporting it and treating it is similar to a stock donation or other non-cash gifts. So their policy is convert all the, the non-cash gifts we get to cash as soon as we can. And then if they do have extra money for, let's say, an endowment or investments, that's going to be governed by their their investment policies, right? The tax implications. So when when we, I I recall, I mean, it was always uh, it was always part of that conversation that I had to be aware of 
when I talked to a major donor who told me that they were donating highly appreciated assets, in some cases, this would be, you know, you know, somebody who's generations older than I was. Um, I remember uh, communicating with a donor once about the, you know, it was old bank stock and the bank stock had to be, um, had to be, uh, the donor referred to it as leaked. So the, the, the shares had to be leaked so that uh, because this particular donor owned a very sizable uh, number of shares in the bank and to, to, to fulfill that pledge that he had, he had made towards us. Um, if, if he, if he fulfilled that all at one time, it would cause a problem. And so he wanted me to learn the language. He essentially taught me the language of leaking stock, which is the idea of sort of breaking down a, a, uh, uh, breaking down the transaction into multiple print transactions so it doesn't mess with the share price. Does that sort of stuff, is that likely to, you know, the expectation that that donor had for me to sort of be somewhat savvy on on what was going on in his head and, and how he was managing this, you know, fulfillment of this commitment. Is that some of mm-hmm. the same expectation that, a you know, a, a donor might have if, if I get a call from a donor and they say, uh, you know, we want to donate some crypto and we want to donate, you know, it's from a particular, you know, it's obviously, hopefully it's not FTX crypto, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but is that some of the same expectation or do you think they're more like this donor, I think sort of expected me to, to sort of know how to speak that language. And I went and did my homework, figured it out. It's always made sense to me uh, since then, but I just don't know that I could be terribly uh, as fluent and ready to go on now, uh, you know, in this context. I think it's going to depend on which cryptocurrency they're donating. So if it's one of the major ones like Bitcoin, Ethereum, or any of the other kind of, let's call it, you know, top 20, top 50, top 100 ones, they, you you would have to donate such a huge amount <laughs> to make a difference um, that it's probably never going to be an issue. Like unless you're donating, let's say, $10 billion or something like that. Um, so in most cases, it's not an issue. The case where you might see something like that could be, let's say it's the founder of a newer cryptocurrency, it's a bit smaller, maybe it's the 500th largest cryptocurrency, right, where the market cap's smaller, and, you know, selling five or 10 million or 50 million at once might have a material impact. Um, so you could see scenarios like that, where they'll say, I'm going to pledge, let's say $100 million donation, but you can only sell, I don't know, 10 million a quarter or a month or something like that. We don't see it a lot. But it's it's something we have seen, but it's usually for the smaller cryptocurrencies. So I remember before I let you go, we'll wrap up on this thought uh, because I, I I'm I'm curious to I, I'm again I'm just sort of reflecting on my own uh, past experiences with planned gifts and not you know stock stock con- contributions of of, of shares uh, from donors, and I remember sort of learning a little bit about who my donors were based on the type of you know if you got shares from a donor who gave you lots of shares of General Electric versus oil and gas shares versus, you know, mm-hmm. d- depending on the industry, you could kind of, you know, if they were uh, blue chip stocks or if they were, um, you know, if they, if they were known to have heavy dividend yields, all these sort of things that you learn about the sort of the values and inherent characteristics behind the companies that these shares represent, um, in, in many cases, told you something about the donor. Um, you know, where their values were and what, uh, you know, it's a different donor that perhaps invests in Home Depot versus, you know, Disney or something um, or, uh, or or my local, you know, York Water Company, for example, is is my local water company. It's publicly traded. And um, and to know that somebody might be donating York Water shares 
you know, says something about their commitment to the to, to invest locally, for example. Um, do, does crypto sort of afford us those types of stories and additional layering that we can, you know, sort of understand who our donors are in addition to just this sort of this general they're younger, they're millennials, they're, you know, whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. And I would say, uh, yeah, it does. I, I would say most cryptocurrencies um, have their own sort of communities around them, which of course then have their own values. Um, I, I would say for some of the larger cryptocurrencies, that's less the case, right? Because if if someone's owning Bitcoin or Ethereum, the two largest, that's almost as if they were donating, I don't know, let's say Apple stock or an index fund where it's almost everyone owns a little bit, right? <laughs> um, but as you get to some of the lesser known cryptocurrencies, I think you can learn more and more about that person um, and you know what they prioritize, what they value, uh, or even where they hang out and who they spend their time with, right? There's different like communities on Discord or Reddit or Twitter or you know, where they communicate and, and that kind of stuff does does change based on the project, really. Oh, that's fascinating. So I'm guessing we have sort of, uh, I mean, does the crypto world sort of divide between uh, sort of PC and Apple? And I mean, do you have those sort of <laughs> dividing lines? Um, sometimes, yeah, there, there's certainly a competitive nature to it, um, where, you know, kind of Bitcoin and Ethereum are the two biggest, um, especially there, there's always another project trying to kind of knock down one of the big ones, right? Like we're better than this one in X, Y, and Z way. Right. Um, so there's always a competitive nature and, you know, no one has been able to kind of even really come that close to Bitcoin and Ethereum in terms of long term kind of staying power. But everyone's always trying. Right. So and, and even between Bitcoin and Ethereum, it's hard to compare the two because they really do serve different use cases. But there's, you know, people refer to it as being like a Bitcoin maximalist or an Ethereum maximalist. Right. Some people might say, I only own Bitcoin or I only own Ethereum or I only own, own this other coin. And they have just like diehard feelings about this one coin and don't care about anything else. I think you see that in, in traditional investments sometimes too. Um, but it's it's interesting to see that kind of behavior kind of play out in crypto as well. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly – I've got a buddy of mine. I've, I've never really given a damn about what type of computers I bought. Most of my you know products are you know PC products and I really like my iPhone. So that doesn't suggest any kind of loyalty. But I remember figuring that out a number of years ago that people who buy – some people who buy Apple products only buy Apple products and consequently everything. And, and you would imagine that maybe even in their, uh, you know, when it comes to their investments, they might, uh, that, that commitment to being a part of that community might be reflected there. Um, Alex, this has been a fascinating conversation. I wanted to add to our library, given sort of the, uh, the immediacy, the relevance of this particular conversation. I wanted to make sure uh, at this particular point and sort of the, this point in history with the uh, F FDX conversation happening, I want to make sure I put this conversation in the in the library. So I appreciate you uh, you volunteering a, a half hour in what sounds to be like a big, big, uh, big couple of days uh, that you guys are going to be uh, navigating in the next week or so with uh, with Giving Tuesday. Alex, if there's somebody who's listening to the conversation, they're interested in reaching out to you or Pat, maybe want to learn a little bit more, become a little more fluent, like I'm trying to do. Very obviously. Um, how would you suggest that they do that? Yeah, so I would recommend going to thegivingblock.com. And if you simply want to learn a bit more, you know, read a couple of our blog posts or sign up for our newsletter and start seeing what's going on in the space of crypto philanthropy. 
Um, or if you're a nonprofit listening and you're already convinced you want to get started, you know, you can go ahead and book a demo on our website too. have a one-on-one session, go through how this actually all works for a nonprofit. Um, but yeah, and of course, there's a typical follow us on social media to, to follow along, right? <laughs> Alex, it's certainly been a pleasure. Uh, I, I, I appreciate your time. I'm going to put this, uh, this, this great article that you guys wrote. Um, uh, I'm going to put this in the show notes. And for our listeners, uh, if, if you want to find out some information, be, be sure to track the, these guys down at the giving block. Um, Alex, it's certainly been a pleasure. You're always welcome back. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.